Hello and welcome back to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. We truly did everything we could. That's what Boris Johnson said when he addressed the nation to give the desperately bleak news that more than 100,000 lives had been lost COVID-19 in the UK. But the Prime Minister also insists that now is not the time to learn lessons from the government's handling of the crisis. So we're going to ask if that's the right approach after a long list of mistakes, though a success or two as well, over the last year. The government's decided to tighten border controls and introduce hotel quarantine. Other countries have had systems in place for months. We'll dial up the IFG's Australian expert, she's at the moment in Australia, to find out how things have worked over there and what could be done to make this work. And as ministers, and indeed all of us, hope for a brighter 2021, we'll look back at how 2020 has changed the way the government made decisions and spent money. The latest edition of our annual Whitehall Monitor report is out, and it's got all the answers. So joining me in search of answers today are a terrific IFG duo, Emma Norris, our Director of Research. Hi, Emma. Hi, Roman. And Tom Sass, Associate Director, who's leading our work on science and vaccines, among other things. Hi, Tom. Hi, Bronwyn. I'm also delighted to be joined by Steve Richards, writer, broadcaster and star of the one-man show Rock and Roll Politics. Steve, how are you? How's the show going? It's being streamed live these days, and it's a great alternative, a a virus-defying alternative, along with a weekly podcast, which, as you know, is a very stimulating experience. We'll come on to that. Let's start with that awful 100,000 milestone added to by another 1,725 COVID deaths recorded in the UK yesterday. The Prime Minister stuck, sorry, the Prime Minister struck a sombre tone, but insists that now is not the time to learn lessons. Emma, back in the summer, you called for a rapid review ahead of any second wave, as well as a full review and retrospect. Well, we've had the second wave, but no rapid review. What could that have done? Well, I think at a basic level, it could have ensured government actually learned lessons about what worked and what didn't work in the first wave response. And, you know, partly, as you said, Bronwyn, there have been some successes and some of the economic packages have worked really well. So government could have looked at, well, why did they work and how can we make sure those successes are replicated in any future changed economic packages. But there have also been a whole host of really serious problems with decision making and delivery, whether that's, you know, the procurement of PPE, test and trace efforts, most clearly the implementation of lockdown policies and when to ease them, particularly questions around school openings. So a rapid review could have helped government answer questions like, when should lockdown happen? Is it better to wait or is it better to move quickly? Should we close borders or tighten them in some form? When is it right to close schools? You know, how strict should policies on travelling to workplaces be? These are all areas that government struggled with. And I think a rapid review could have helped look at what worked and what didn't in the first wave and then really prepare us to make better decisions in the second. Um, I guess the other thing with a rapid review is it's not about apportioning blame. The public inquiry that will come will look at, you know, where blame lies. But actually, a rapid review is literally just saying, how can we learn from what we've already done, from any new evidence that we've, you know, amassed to make sure that we're responding as effectively as possible? So I think it's a real shame it didn't happen. And you put your finger on some of the things that the government has really been criticised for, for example, the timing of lockdowns, whether they're too too slow, and uh, what didn't work. Lots about the test and trace. Our economics team is also making the point that some of the financial support worked really well in the beginning and it was very fast, but actually they could have begun to do a lot more about targeting it towards people who really need it, away from people who don't, and combating fraud, which is rising up there as an issue. Steve, what did you um, make of the Prime Minister's tone and this question of a review or non-review? 
the review is just politically impossible. It's obviously highly desirable when you have a government or a prime minister in a way that I find really bizarre is incapable of learning lessons. The same mistakes are repeated in a way that's rather sinister and eerie. And a rapid review in which you had conclusions written down, uh, unavoidable, would have been useful. But even if you had a rapid review which didn't allocate blame, blame would be implicit. And so no government, in fairness to Johnson, would instigate such a thing in the midst of a crisis, uh, because culpability would be obvious from such a review. However, it does therefore put huge pressure on ministers, which they fail to meet, to challenge Johnson when he repeats the same mistakes about delaying uh, the necessary constraints or failing to lock down the borders in a way that is wholly effective, etc., etc. So although I can see why he wouldn't hold one, won't hold one during this period, the lessons, frankly, are obvious, even if he fails each time to learn them. Emma, do you agree with that? I I agree with it to an extent. I think, you know, Steve's absolutely right that it's politically difficult to do anything which could hint at blame. But to be honest, I think we're already there. We can already see the problems that are being repeated, the mistakes that are being repeated. There are already questions about culpability. And I think actually the idea that learning can only happen after an event is quite a flawed idea during a crisis um, is actually when learning arguably matters most. Testing and adapting should be, you know, a hallmark of, of good policymaking, especially in a crisis. Um, and I think, you know, a public inquiry at the end, that is going to happen. I'm sure it is. And it will give really important lessons for future crises and for future pandemics. But it will be after the fact. And it's actually in the middle of this when some kind of, you know, lesson learning can have most impact on this pandemic and our response right now. Yeah, just let's be clear, who decides whether or not there is an inquiry? Uh, ultimately, it's um, for the Prime Minister to decide whether or not to announce um, whether there's an inquiry. And he's committed to it. Uh, he, he said back in July, now, and, and he's mentioned it again. But it is conceivable it doesn't happen, isn't it? Well, I'm not sure it is conceivable that it, it doesn't happen, actually. I think for given the kind of things we've had inquiries for before, this completely blows you know, other subjects out of the water. The kind of the scale of loss, as you described, Bronwyn. You know, scale of economic impact, it's really hard to see how there's not a public inquiry. If Johnson chooses um, to go down the route of not having one, there are potential, potentially some legal routes that, for instance, victims, families of victims um, could try and pursue to force his hand. And um, so I think one way or another, we will have a public inquiry. I think the question is, what kind of model does government go for? Does it go for a full kind of statutory inquiry under the Inquiries Act that gives you know lots of powers to the judge? It allows them to call witnesses, to force the release of documentation and evidence. Or do they try and pitch for something softer, um, you know, a non-statutory inquiry, something more informal that lacks the teeth of a formal inquiry? That's fascinating. Tom, you, you were the co-author of a report. Um, on the, the government's use of scientific advice, which has been one of the, the things that absolutely centre stage in all this. And, and your report was quite critical in many ways. Um, do you sense any improvements? I think it, it's too early to say, really. I mean, one thing I noticed in the last week or so was Patrick Vallance, the government's chief scientific advisor, coming out rather pointedly by sort of invoking uh, Einstein's definition of madness, which is sort of doing the same thing over and over again, and expecting a different result when he was asked about the possibility that the government would release restrictions too quickly next month. I think 
clearly the the mistakes in terms of the use of science advice that that Emma's outlined of you know delaying putting off decisions much too long sort of ignoring the scientists without a clear reason for doing that and then not really bringing the science together with other forms of advice there's still signs that that is happening at the moment I think you know we'll come on to this with Sarah a bit later but I think on the quarantine policy we're seeing sort of some evidence of a bit of a a fudge already and you know the big test of whether government is using science advice better is going to be that that release of this lockdown and how it manages this really quite tricky period as vaccinations are being rolled out but the threat of the virus in the country remains pretty large. But let me just ask you because someone from the government might might say look that's not quite fair uh, the point is we're not uh, we've been guided by the science at all points but but it's not everything we are indeed balancing it against other considerations like risks to health risks to mental health uh, risk to health from other things and and of course the economy and the whole point is that this is a balancing act I think that's you know that's absolutely right but the the problem with the government's approach really has been swinging from you know following the scientists to then completely ignoring them and sort of going with what the, what the treasury's view might be and not having a sort of consistent overarching strategy throughout that was the problem really with the release of the the first lockdown when all that effort had been put in over months to get transmission down and then you saw a sort of host of policies from the treasury you know we've, we've all sort of seen the the studies of Eat Out to Help Out, which scientists weren't given sight of. So what you really need is the centre of government. I think this also relates to the paper our colleague Alex Thomas put out this week on on a stronger centre. You need the centre of government bringing together those different inputs. It's a sort of concern about the virus, the health impacts, the economic impacts, and producing a sort of overall strategy which incorporates all of those things and not seeing, you know, one part of government take one approach and the Treasury taking a quite different approach. I mean, the other reflection I just had listening to to Steve and Emma is this is a government that does find it quite difficult to admit mistakes. And that's been the case right throughout this crisis, really. You, you saw it in the language of we'll do the right thing at the right time, but, you know, always, always refusing to sort of admit when that timing had been slightly off. We saw it again, actually, yesterday. Generic came out saying that government had always followed the science advice, which is clearly, clearly untrue. Um, so I think actually a bit more of a mature approach from ministers of just being able to sort of actually admit some mistakes and then use that as a basis to move on and learn would be quite positive. All right. One of the things that we're obviously keen to talk about is the vaccine rollout, which is a much more positive story. Indeed, the, the vaccine creation, production, purchasing uh, uh, and rollout. I mean, what have they got right there that they didn't in other things? So I think this is really interesting. I've actually written a piece saying this is one area where I think the government is learning from its mistakes to some extent. I mean, clearly, we the UK had some advantages already. We had this sort of strong life sciences sector. We had one of the best uh, sort of medicines regulator in the EU. And that's one of the reasons perhaps the EU has been struggling a bit. But actually, ministers did some things very well. They acted very quickly and boldly. They were prepared to spend lots of money, take some big risks right back in the early part of last year when there was a lot of scepticism about vaccines. We ought to, to credit Kate Bingham, who came in for quite a lot of criticism over other parts of our conduct, but really has pulled off a big success. I think the government learned from the PPE crisis in March. You know, that was another case where, you know, international supply chains were choked up. This time around, they've invested much more in creating sort of resilience, you know, increasing the UK's domestic manufacturing capacity um, and and sort of building a much bigger stockpile. Steve, Labour's call for the vaccine to be prioritised for key workers. Smart politics or smart um, medicine? 
Well, it's uh, again, they have to make calculations which are both political and have merit in terms of the substance. If you are going to prioritise the reopening of schools, there is some merit in what Keir Starmer has been saying in terms of using the half term to protect teachers. But there is a political calculation, which he's broadly got right, I think, in that uh, you try and anticipate where the next hurdles are going to come from Johnson and assume he might leap over them in the way that Starmer has proposed, which has happened several times. I don't think Starmer has got this wholly right, given the consensus in this discussion that the government has made a series of mistakes and then quite often repeated them. I think he has been far too laid back at times in his attempt to get the balance between appearing supportive in a national crisis and critical. He could have been much more critical and tonally much more critical than he has been. But this attempt to reframe where the vaccine should go next is the, there's merit to the argument if you're going to reopen the schools uh, by March now. Uh, and there is politics in it inevitably too in the same way. I completely agree with the other contributors that there is a lot to learn from the mistakes made so far. I'm just saying there is always a political dimension to an emergency and that's why we're not going to get a review now. And, and Emma, finally, the, the, the Prime Minister has said there'll be a, a full public inquiry. When should that start? Well, so I think, you know, this is where I agree with Steve. I don't think there's any way the full public inquiry can begin until the pandemic's essentially over. Um, so who knows exactly when that will be. Um, possibly the earliest will be later this year. It could start early next year. Um, you know, and a public inquiry requires a level of focus and cooperation from government that is just understandably going to be impossible whilst the crisis is still in full tilt. I think the only thing the government could do now is, you know, it's worth saying public inquiries are incredibly complex bureaucratic undertakings. Um, and some of the things you need to do well before actually kicking an inquiry off are finding a chair, probably in this case, a very senior and experienced um, high court judge who is willing to take years out of their job. That alone is going to take a long time. It's probably going to be difficult to identify somebody. Working out the terms of reference for an inquiry that touches you know, so many aspects of public life, government, health, epidemiology and so on. Thinking about how you structure an inquiry that big, how you involve the public when you know everybody has been affected, all these kind of basics that you need in place before you even kick the thing off could take months, if not a year of planning. So I think one of the questions is, even if you can't begin a public inquiry um, until the pandemic is over, is it worth getting the ball rolling now on some of that organisation? So once the, the pandemic is, is over or close to over, it, it's ready to start. Right. Well, let's do a, a pivot now to Australia, the kind of fantasy travel that's about all we can manage in the way of travel at the moment. The Prime Minister this week announced that UK nationals and residents returning from coronavirus hotspots would have to quarantine in government provided hotels. And people wishing to leave the country now need to explain their reason. And it would have to be a very good reason in order to be able to do so. Labour say it's all too little too late, and it's true that other countries have had systems like that, in fact, more stringent systems, in place for months. One of those is Australia, and we're joined now by IFG senior researcher Sarah Nixon. Sarah, hi. Hello. 
So begin by taunting us. What's the weather like where you are? This is from London where the snow has just melted. And is life in Australia pretty much back to normal? Um, well, on the first point, Bronwyn, perhaps out of sympathy for our British cousins, it rained all day here today. But on the second, I, I can duly deliver because um, I have to say life in Australia is, I think, as normal as it is possible to be. You know, we had the Boxing Day test match with a crowd. Uh, I'm hoping to go to the Australian Open tennis in a couple of weeks. I think our system of quarantine has been instrumental in allowing us to enjoy that kind of existence. Okay, well, now we're all thoroughly miserable. And that's even without having Jill Rutter with our particular uh, tennis fan. So tell us how the quarantine system works in Australia. Right. So you come off the plane after your long haul flight. Um, you'll be escorted by police to a hotel where you'll be given a one-way key card for your room and you're in there for 14 days. You'll get three, day, three meals a day dropped outside your door. Um, you'll be tested for the virus a couple of times. You'll have a lot of chance to watch a lot of Netflix and make TikTok videos to your heart's content. But yes, it's a 14-day stint inside that hotel room. Right, and you have to pay for that. Yes, it's $3,000 per person. Um, I, I think the government kindly reduces uh, the cost if, if there are more travellers in a family setting. But yes, you, you as the traveller are picking up the tab on top of what is an extortionately inflated airfare in all likelihood. Does it make any difference if you're Australian or not? It does absolutely make a difference insofar as if you're not Australian and if you're not a permanent resident, which is basically like having indefinite leave to remain, um, you're not even allowed into the country in the first place. Um, that's basically because hotel quarantine is a really tricky operation to run. You can only you know, have so many hotel rooms um, and have so many people to, to staff the operation. So demand for places in hotel quarantine vastly outstrips supply. There's a lot of discouragement for Australians leaving the country, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. It, oh, it's far more than discouragement. It's you need an exemption from the government to be able to leave the country. Right. So that's things kind of like I would like to go and see my dying relative or I'm moving overseas for a job or for long-term study like a PhD. So you, you can get an exemption to leave, but it, it's very difficult because the government basically doesn't want more people trying to come through the hotel quarantine system. Now, there were some early teething problems, weren't there, um, in Melbourne? Yes, there were. So so Melbourne had a, a problem with a big second wave. I mean, it's easy to forget this now, but actually back in the, um, the Northern Hemisphere summer, there were more cases going around Melbourne than there were in the whole of the UK. So, yeah, in terms of those teething problems, I mean, there were a lot of relatively trivial things like people not happy with the food they were being served. But the big thing that happened in Melbourne was that they really did not have enough qualified staff. They used privately contracted security guards. Um, and, of course, these people, to, to make, you know, make sure people don't leave their rooms, and, of course, these people are not experts in infection control. And, unfortunately, they weren't properly trained. So quite a few of them picked up the virus from um, infected guests. Um, and from there, it ended up being escaping into the community. What's the downside of doing this? Yeah, so I think the downsides fall into two categories. So, first of all, there's the human cost. As I said, only Australians are allowed in. And, in fact, even among that, there is a cap on the number of Australians who are allowed into the country each week, about 1,500 people per week for Sydney. And for the other state capitals, it's even less than that. So there are tens of thousands of Australians who are stranded abroad who would desperately want to get home. Some of them are in really terrible positions and they're struggling to get home, even though the government is putting on repatriation flights. Um, the second uh, you know, kind of cost that uh, is being incurred is economic costs. 
So anyone that's not a citizen or permanent resident is not allowed into the country. Um, so that means any industry that relies on migrants for work or for customers, like you know the university sector with international students, and any industry that relies on tourists, obviously they've taken a massive hit. Uh, and I suspect the UK would be facing very similar problems if it went down a similar path. So the, the country is really very cut off. I mean, Steve, the, the government here is going for a partial approach. It sounded as if it was going to go for something as strict as Australia, and then then it hasn't quite. Can you take us through that and, and whether you think it worked? Well, it's a repetition, the, the recurring theme of um, not doing quite enough uh, in response to the latest manifestations of the variants which are spreading around the world. So one of the more fundamental errors was not doing more about the borders over, well, in March of last year. And now uh, there has been intense cabinet discussion about how they uh, limit access through the borders. And they've come up with what Tony Blair would call a third way, where you impose constraints on some countries, but not all. In about 30 countries where you've got to do this quarantine, um, but others you, others you don't. And the, the checks on those quarantining at home have been notoriously erratic. And so once again, you could see a sequence happening. I hope this is proves not to be the case this time, where the government acts, the variant then does get in through it being too lax, the borders. Uh, and then it has to hammer down more constraints when it's too late. And so th- that's where we are. It's about a prime minister, as I said at the beginning, who seems to have a whole, wholly incapable ability to learn lessons and to repeat the same mistakes. He doesn't do context or consequences, Boris Johnson. He never addressed consequences when he was a political columnist and can't do it as prime minister. And it is a really serious flaw. Emma, do you agree that the government should have done this earlier? Yes, I completely agree. I think that um, not taking you know, decisive action on the border earlier was one of the big problems um, in our initial response. And I think Steve's absolutely right that this is you know, yet another example of kind of split the difference um, approach to decision making. You know, the real issue is, does this do enough, not just to avoid the variants that we already know are in circulation, but to avoid other um, as yet unidentified dangerous variants that originates in one of the countries that aren't on the 30 hotspots list entering this country. You know, how certain are we that the next variant is coming from that list of 30 hotspots? Um, What if it comes from a country that isn't on that list? And, you know, are our rules for countries that aren't on that list really strong enough to prevent that variant circulating? At the moment, you come from a country that isn't on that list. There's a self-enforced 10 days isolation at home. You might get a phone call to check that you're isolating. You might not. Do we really think that's sufficient to contain other variants when we're you know, in the middle of rolling out the vaccine or, or would something actually stronger be a, a better approach that shows we have learned from past mistakes? Tom, this is going to be a huge logistical exercise. Um, how are they going to go, go about it? And perhaps you could take us into as well the testing, uh, sorry, the, uh, the, the checking, uh, which Emma was just referring to, of, um, of how people check up on, how the government's checking up on quarantine. Yeah, well, that, well, that's right. I think it's a, it's in many ways, it's it's more difficult than than what Australia was trying to do. Partly because the goal is very different, and you know, we we can't sort of encourage people to take the pain of this policy by showing them that we're going to sort of get numbers down to almost absolutely nothing, like Sarah's sort of able to have in in Australia. Because actually, what we're trying to do is 
detect and prevent the, these new variants. But uh, as Emma's been indicating, the sort of genomic surveillance that you would need to do that around the world effectively isn't really isn't really there. Um, so I think that makes it much more difficult. Then, as you're saying, it's the, the logistical task of actually sort of going around and, 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 and checking on people as once they're here or sort of in hotels is really difficult, particularly when you have local NHS and local government already so absorbed with the vaccination programme and the huge numbers of people in hospitals. Um, so that's the reason why, you know, there's some talk of government looking to uh, outsource providers here as they have in other stages of the crisis. Yeah, is that a, is that, that a bad thing? Well, I think it's it, it, it's reasonable if they don't have any capacity at a local level to, to look to some help to do this. The trick is to find people who actually have the kind of skills to do it well and to make sure the contracts are well designed. Um, I think when, when Serco were brought in to do some of the support on Test and Trace, they weren't the best people for that job. They didn't have the sort of expertise for it necessarily. You could argue that uh, in this case, you know, if it's, if it's providing security and things like that, that is something that outsourcing companies have more expertise in doing. But again, you need to you need to find people who can do the job really competently. Um, you know, it's it's a really really important task, and it's not something that you can afford to to sort of let up on. So, what do we all think about the exit from this? And I, I'm struck by a piece um, that Ian Martin uh, wrote in the Times today about whether travel would ever come back in the kind of cheap cheap and easy way we've been used to it. And that's a point I've touched on in a piece I've got going out um, for the IFG on uh, the new normal and whether. That really resembles the old normal at all. Sarah, let me start with you. I mean, what do people in Australia think? Is is is, is travel going to go come back, or um, you cut off forever? Um, I think that's something that everyone in Australia is hanging to find out. The government really has not spelled out any kind of exit strategy publicly. Um, so we're staring down the barrel of two years, effectively cut off from the world, which is a, a pretty daunting prospect. And no one has kind of said publicly, there hasn't really been a public conversation about what is going to be the trigger point. Because even with the vaccine rolled out, you know, officials have said, well, you know, we don't know whether it will stop transmission. I'm just questioning in Australia, you know, the vaccine is not, the rollout of the vaccine is not at the point at which you move. What is? So it's a big question. Emma, what do you reckon? I think that there are probably going to be a hangover um, of measures for quite some time, whether that's, you know, uh, requirements around kind of testing, vaccination um, certificates. I also wonder whether, for instance, masks are going to be a big part of our approach to travel um, for, for the foreseeable future. You know, will we feel comfortable even if travel is freed up again um, at some point this year or next, travelling without the kind of protection that we've, you know, increasingly become used to? Or is that going to be part of our, you know, rail and um, uh, flight travel for, you know, uh, on an ongoing basis? Yeah. Steve, what, what about the economics of this? I mean, you've got the airlines pleading for more, uh, financial support, but um, some of them are going to go under. Some have, um, you know, pulled back their flights already, aren't they? I think the era of cheap travel is gone. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I mean, we've talked about Johnson's inability to sort of plan ahead and look ahead in a consistent, coherent way. But in a way, all of us struggle to look too far ahead. Uh, one thing the scientists have all agreed on uh, and say regularly: the virus is here to stay. 
our ability to adapt to it uh, might well improve and is already improving, but it's here to stay. And it seems to me that that will have long-term implications for travel. Maybe it will be as minor as we just wear a mask and we go back to the kind of uh, cheap travel that we were all used to before, but it might be that it's more limited, that every now and again there are constraints at borders that have to be implied quickly and for some time as a new variant emerges. I think we all dread looking into that future because even the immediate future is hazy. But given that it's going to be around, I think that sort of absolute sense of freedom to travel will never be quite the same again with, as you suggest, huge economic implications for the travel sector and other sectors too. Well, I I think what we've seen this week is really the clearest sign that the exit strategy has to be a global strategy. And actually any kind of national-based strategy for just sort of vaccinating the vulnerable is not really going to get anyone back to normality. I think the really interesting thing with the whole SPAC going on with the EU and, and clearly you know, procurement lawyers and AstraZeneca might say that they don't have the right to demand quite yet the sort of vaccine being produced here. Um, But actually, what it does point towards is where this conversation and debate is going. You know, the the, the big question for politicians in the UK is how much of the UK population is it actually reasonable to vaccinate while other countries near neighbours, you know, sub-Saharan African countries are not able to vaccinate their, their vulnerable people. Um, and that's where this is going to go. I mean, the other thing about it as well is, is this question of variance. Again, it's not a question that can really be tackled by, by any one country. So we're going to need to see a big return to multilateralism. And with that, let's come on to our final topic. Let's take a step back and look at how the events of last year have changed the way that the government works. It seems a very long time ago that Boris Johnson was swept to power with an 80-seat majority, promised to get Brexit done, level up the country, and nearly everything since has been dominated by the pandemic and the government's response. So the latest edition of our annual report, which is called Whitehall Monitor, is out this week, and its lead author, Tim Durrant, joins us now. Hi, Tim. Hi, Bronwyn. How many pages this time? How many graphs? So this time we're on 113 pages with 48 charts. Great. And I have to say, we don't aim for more and more every year at all. We aim for the right ones, which you've absolutely got this year. So tell us what the report looks into this year, this extraordinary year. Yeah, that it's been. yeah absolutely. As you say, it is, it is absolutely an extraordinary year. And, and what, we, what we did when we started this was ask ourselves, how have the events of 2020 um, affected the working of government and changed the way that government works? So we looked at everything from um, how much money the government spent on the coronavirus response to um, how many special advisors left the government in the last 12 months, to um, which video conferencing software different departments were using and how that changed through through the working from home months. So it covers a whole range of different sort of metrics, different kind of criteria. You know, it really shows just how how difficult governing was in, in this time. You know, ministers were making decisions quickly, officials were having to change the way they work, change the way they deliver services. And... Um, and there's, I think there's going to be a big sort of a long impact on, on how government works from, from the last 12 months. What surprised you? So one of the things that surprised me most was um, I had this impression that the UK government was very much kind of handing down decisions to, um, to local authorities and, and the devolved government. But actually, one, one of the things we looked into was the frequency of meetings between ministers and the devolved governments and uh, senior people in, in local authorities. 
and central government. And, and throughout the year, you know, whether it was COBRA meetings or more specific meetings on a particular topic, uh, those meetings continued. And, and there were ongoing discussions about the response and the pandemic and the local regulations that the government was putting into place. So, for example, when Leicester stayed in, um, in lockdown after the rest of England uh, last summer, there was a flurry of meetings between the mayor of Leicester and and central government ministers and officials. And I thought that was really interesting because there'd been this kind of narrative that, you know, it was all decisions made in Westminster that were just being sort of handed out. Obviously, you know, a meeting doesn't mean that a local authority mayor has kind of the same level of, of uh, sway as a minister, but the conversations continued. And I think that's quite interesting. And one of the things you've, you've brought out is that um, the lack of competition in government procurement, which sounds deeply technical, but meaning that uh, contracts are being handed out very quickly, often without rival bidders. And so real questions about whether it's value for money and indeed cronyism, as, as, as we've heard. Yeah, absolutely. So of the sort of, there were there were contracts issued up to July last year that were worth £17.5 billion. Pounds. So it's a huge slug of money for various aspects of the coronavirus response, PPE and, and, and other things. And only 1% of those had a full sort of competitive uh, process. Now, as you say, you know, ministers wanted to spend money quickly. They wanted to, to procure the goods and services needed uh, to respond to the virus. But the fact that such a large proportion of these uh, contracts were either handed out with no competition at all or through existing kind of framework agreements with preferred bidders and so on, it does raise questions about whether the value for money um, checks were really there. And also, you know, we've seen reports of contracts being handed to companies that weren't actually sort of equipped or, or experienced in providing the, the goods that the government wanted, but there was just such a demand for this that, that things had to move so quickly. So I, I hope that's one of the, the sort of changes that we've seen this year that doesn't become embedded in the way government does things. Tom, that's something you've done quite a lot of work on, on outsourcing and procurement and so on. Um, understandable given the circumstances or a, a, a dangerous habit to get into and a tendency, a temptation that's always there? I definitely agree with Tim. I think dangerous habit to get into and, and really reflected potentially a sort of bit of a lack of preparation and anticipation of some of the challenges that were going to come. So we, we talked earlier about, you know, the PPE stockpile not being sufficient, but also actually the government not having plans for how it would increase its 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 supply chain very quickly if it needed to in the case of a pandemic like this one. So I think in some senses, the, the kind of, you know, uh, direct awards, as they're called, were reflecting that. But I also think it, it, it reflects a deeper sort of philosophical thing about this government, which is a, a bit of a disregard for some of the sort of normal rules about how things are done. The fact that, you know, these non-competitive processes have been used so often and continuing, as Tim says, right the way through the crisis, but also that government, that they're not publishing the usual transparency data on them. Those two things to me add up to a bit of a, a sort of disregard here. The one thing I would say is that since getting a bit of a panning by the NAO a couple of months ago on this, they have published a green paper setting out how they will improve their procurement behaviour uh, and publish more data. But we're yet to see that quite come to fruition. Yeah, that's the National Audit Office, which produced a really searing report. Um, its reports aren't always that, but in tone, it was absolutely scathing. Um, Steve, it, not many ministers moved. Nobody left the cabinet since February. Uh, is that stability a good thing? 
I think stability is not a word that can be uh, too uh, <laughs> forcibly applied to events of the last 12 months with respect to the government. But it absolutely made sense and was, in some respects, inevitable that reshuffles would have been as impossible uh, politically as a review of what had gone wrong. Uh, it, you know, To move, say, the health secretary in the midst of this would be crazy, even though, as you, as an institute of They've been happy to remove uh, permanent secretaries and indeed uh, reconfigure agencies who have considerable power. They've got rid of them um, and they haven't sacked cabinet ministers. But in, in, in some respects, that, that again tells us something about this government. But in terms of the cabinet, I think it was uh, it's sensible, however poor the performance and some of the performances have been abysmal, not to start doing some major rearranging of cabinet posts in the midst of this, uh, because bringing new people in to departments facing mountainous challenges would be probably as counterproductive as getting rid of people who are hopeless. Um, so I'm not surprised by that, but it is interesting, the, the wide report and the, the one the Institute published a few days ago, showing that the centre is both too strong and too weak. There are so many lessons arising from this pandemic, from procurement to the atomization of public services, to the confusion of who runs what and who is ultimately in control. And it's interesting that there was dialogue between local government and central government for example, Leicester Council. But in a way, the councils were sort of there, they had a stage, but were pleading for the government to make different decisions sometimes. They didn't have the power themselves. So there were huge issues about where power lies in England arising from the pandemic. And when's the right time for a reshuffle? Um, I would say not until the summer, when there should be a clearer sense of whether we are getting out of this or still in the depths. And then you clearly need to move people who aren't up to it around. And anyway, this government needs a significant change. Uh, there's been an important reshuffle, which you also have done work on within number 10, uh, which has been interesting, I think. And uh, But yeah, I would say the summer. It might come before that, but that's when I would think it would be a sensible time if there is a sense of things slightly more under control with the pandemic. Those are indeed the kind of rumblings we're, we're hearing. Emma, we were talking earlier about lessons to learn. Are there lessons that jump out for you from this? Uh, yeah, I think there are a couple, actually. I think the first is that we often talk about um, Whitehall being really bad at, um, at kind of major projects, at big change. But actually, what we've seen in the pandemic is that really large-scale change at speed is possible. So whether that's internal change, like moving the entire civil service pretty much to working from home um, in a matter of weeks, that, that has happened and it's happened quite effectively. And I think we've seen it on policy too. Something you know as expensive and complex as the furlough scheme was developed by the Treasury in just a few weeks and was operational within a month. Um, of its announcement. So, you know, big change at pace is possible. Um, I think the other interesting lesson to come out of it is that some of actually the most kind of maligned policies um, have be been quite important to success during the pandemic. So, for instance, universal credit, you know, hugely controversial welfare reform has actually been really important um, pro for providing support during the pandemic and has proved relatively successful um, at providing that. Likewise, the kind of contingency planning that went into 
um, no deal Brexit um, emergency plans has been really important for allowing the government to respond quickly to the pandemic. During um, no deal contingency planning, uh, 1,500 civil servants were redeployed in, I think, October 2019 alone. Government used that experience to help it quickly move people around in the event of the pandemic, take people from Dexu that was being wound up and redeploy them to health department, take people who were working on COP, which was obviously delayed, and, and move them to other parts of the pandemic response. It was really able to learn from, from these um, difficult policies and, and make them work for the pandemic. Thanks. Uh, that, that's the COP uh, Climate Change Summit. Thank, thanks very much for that. And Tim, finally, just give us a little nugget on this. Uh, it sounds very technical, but ministerial directions. This is one of the fascinating things, I thought, in the report. Yeah, absolutely. So a direction is when um, civil servants say to their minister, actually, minister, we don't think this is the right thing to do because we can't justify it on value for money grounds, perhaps, or because we think it's going to be very difficult to make happen. Um, and the minister says, well, actually, you know what, fine, you, you that's your advice. I accept that, but I'm still going to direct you to do it anyway, because I'm taking into account other things. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, it doesn't mean that it's the wrong thing to do. It just means that, you know, a, a minister, obviously a political appointee can can use other factors to make a decision than the the uh, impartial civil service the number of directions we have each year is normally around sort of five or six often even less than that but in 2020 we had 19 um, a massive increase in previous years and most of those were related to the the pandemic a lot of them came from the business secretary uh, in the various schemes set up to get money out to businesses who were struggling and it just shows um, you know, the, the difficulty of making policy in such a kind of fast-changing, ongoing crisis where you know, there is clearly a need to support businesses because their, their customers dried up because of the lockdown or because of the virus itself. But the ways to do that are very difficult. And the NAO, the, the National Audit Office, has also pointed out that some of these schemes are at risk of, of high levels of fraud um, because they were designed with sort of quite a broad targeting of, of businesses to help as many people as possible. But that obviously means that there's a risk that money goes where it wasn't supposed to. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And that's the kind of thing I, I was suggesting earlier, that you know it might be all right in the first few months or justified by the emergency, but it's the kind of thing you want the government to look very closely at as it goes on. But that's a fascinating figure. Thanks very much indeed. Well, that's it for another week. My great thanks to Emma Norris, Tom Sass, Tim Durrant, Sarah Nixon, and especially to Steve Richards. Thanks for being with us. If you enjoyed this podcast, then do check out our sister podcast channel, IFG Live. You can listen to my annual lecture this week, and I was joined um, by David Runciman and Richard Lambert for a terrific discussion immediately afterwards about the government's performance last year, uh, all kinds of things, where it did well, where it did badly, um, and, and lots of details there. My thoughts on Pretty Patel and Gavin Williamson and uh, also about the challenges ahead in 2021. Next week, we'll be recording the launch of Whitehall Monitor with a great panel featuring the BBC's Lewis Goodall. So you can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave us a review. We're up for learning lessons about how to do it better. We'll be back next week, and until then, you can find all our work, including the Whitehall Monitor 2021 report at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. It has been a historic and terrible week in the story of this crisis. Here's to brighter ones ahead. Bye.